You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's up, everybody? Happy Wednesday to you. It's Wednesday, right? After a holiday, it's sometimes hard to figure that out. Uh, happy belated Memorial Day to everybody. <laughs> We're still getting the, the holiday brain fog out, I guess, a little bit. But I'm Anthony Cazenza, joined by the man, the myth, the legend, the talent, John Sheeran. John, how was your how was your holiday weekend, man? It was good. Um, played golf for the first time in a minute nice. uh, on Monday. Um, so that was nice. I drove up. A- I drove the green of a par four from the first time. Ooh. It was only it was like two sixty five off the tee. Left That's it like twenty five feet away. Well, well, two putt birdie that never hurts. But yeah. yeah, it was nice. Nice to get back on the links from a beautiful Memorial Day, and um, yeah, it's been a decent week so far. Well, we got to get you. We got to get you out there with Brady and Mahomes and all the guys <laughs> playing in that that little championship thing. And uh, I don't, don't want to embarrass. I don't want to embarrass them. You know, like I'm. I'm <laughs> Definitely beat those guys easily. Is it in Vegas? Is that where I think it was played played at the Wind Course or something? Isn't it? Um, I, I don't know, but that sounds about right. Yeah. Well, I I, I know you would put them to shame, Mister Birdie a par four, hit the green on one. I like it. I like it. Well, this is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. We don't normally talk about golf, but we talk about the Cincinnati Bengals, the NFL, and all kinds of different things. It is a little bit of a slower time in the NFL calendar and the Bengals calendar, if you will. But that doesn't mean we don't have stuff to talk about. And that doesn't mean that there aren't some interesting topics to touch on. We're going to have a little fun tonight. We're going to we're going to take a little bit of a trip down memory lane of sorts in a couple of different ways uh, with both a remember when. And we're going to we're going to look back. We haven't really done this. We've talked about some top moments and different things sort of here and there, but we haven't really said, hey, what were our favorite, favorite games by the Bengals in this special season? So we're going to kind of talk about that, maybe do a top three, top five, something like that. Then we're going to uh, talk, do our continue our behind-the-scenes Bengals series that we've started, kind of talking about some under-the-radar guys that could have more prominent roles than expected. And then, of course, um, we're going to give you a little OTA update as well. But if you're new here, welcome to the live recording. We we do this live. We like to have fun and play a little jazz when we take the air and uh, improvise, but also have we, we have a plan of sorts as well. So we do that. But if you're joining us either on the Cincy Jungle Facebook page, our YouTube channel, you can click on the icon uh, at the bottom of your screen there. If you are watching it there to subscribe and the bell to be notified when we are going live, when new content's available, all that kind of stuff. We've got a new series we're going to be dropping on the YouTube channel, maybe doing the audio as well. But uh, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. And then, of course, uh, as I mentioned on the audio side, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, we are on all of them. So subscribe to the Cincy Jungle Podcast channel. We're going to keep cruising and giving you 
content throughout the off season, throughout the slower parts of this season, but we are getting pretty close, believe it or not, to training camp and all kinds of things. Now that the calendar has officially turned to June. Um, let's do a little, a quick rundown. It's been a little bit of a quiet first half of the week on the OTA front, John, um, what, what are some of the news and notes? I went through a bunch yesterday with Josh Isles, who runs the Houday Nation Facebook page. 160,000 folks liking that page. It's incredible there. And uh, we had a fun chat with Josh. I know. It's it's nuts, man. Uh, we had a fun chat yesterday. But um, what should we be knowing or, or uh, what should be at the top of the mind here based on OTAs and some stuff going on this week? A little bit quiet on the front, though. Yeah, I think we just have to remember what the priorities are right now just stay healthy you know Mm -hmm. if you're participating that's great if not hopefully you can participate by the end of july it seems as if there's no real updates on some of the injuries that these guys are dealing with joseph asai was seen doing some agility work i think for the first time at least on camera when uh, media was allowed to watch on tuesday well that's really important for coming off a knee injury we know he can run in a straight line but how well can you change direction how well can you actually use the flexibility in that knee that you just got cleaned up. So there's progress there. Alex Kappa, I believe, was seen at practice in New Jersey, but not working. So he's still, I think, rehabbing or um, healing up from that core muscle injury. I think um, as far as attendance goes in OTAs, Jesse Bates obviously still was not present. Trey Hendrickson is still, I think, with family at the moment. So he's not uh, there either. Again, Hendrickson doesn't have any financial incentive to show up to some of these workouts right now. So there's no real... Real worry there. I think Von Bell was also not present, but that was because apparently he couldn't like fly in to Cincinnati in time, I think, according to Zach Taylor. So by and large, still, you know, plenty of presence at OTAs. But other than that, you know, we saw I think Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins and Jamar Chase, you know, go downfield against air and catch some balls from Joe Burrow. And I think Joe Burrow was seen like sprinting. Um with, with that yeah. one of those, like, yeah, those played yesterday. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. So other than that, you know, it's it's it was May 31st. And now it's June 1st and these Bengals are still practicing. That's really all there is to say. Yeah. And, you know, it seems, especially on the borough front, it seems that things are far. I don't know if far advanced is the right phrase specifically, but they are ahead of where they were last year in terms of, you know, he's not rehabbing an injury at least not a a devastating one that he had in 2020 as a rookie. So he's doing more on-field work. You're getting more guys back, doing some different things. As you mentioned, it is kind of Joseph Osai hype season. He is kind of on the the side field doing some things. We've shown and talked about that a little bit, but he's looking pretty good. He had another side procedure. We talked about that, but I mean, he's looking pretty good. And I think a lot of people are banking on him having an impact and that's, especially so given the fact that the Bengals didn't really go, you know, high, high priority at edge this year in free agency or the draft. I mean, they, they did that last year in Hendrickson and whatnot, but I mean, they have hopes for him and as well as Hubert and all the other guys that they've uh, amassed over the last couple of years. So he's kind of been a talking point. And then of course, just kind of a thing that, I mean, I guess you realize it now that it comes as a conversation point, but I didn't really think about it until it was brought up. And that is Tyler Boyd kind of closing in on some, you know, Bengals receiving marks, career milestones, et cetera, et cetera. Quietly a guy who now is the, you know, wide receiver three on this team, albeit a very, very good one. Um, He is now, you know, a guy that's going to get up there in terms of career numbers with some big receiving names on the Cincinnati Bengals. 
Yeah, I'm just looking at like the leaderboard right now. He's 11th in total receiving yards, and he's only 30 behind Bob Trumpy at 10th and Tim McGee, friend of the show, at 9th. And he's like really close to both those guys. So he's going to pass both of them this year. I think I think that's fair to say. He's going to go up to what would it be ninth all time in receiving yards. And then TJ Uzama, who was the Tyler Boyd before Tyler Boyd, he's at 5,782 yards and Boyd right now is at 4,571 yards. So I don't think that Boyd is going to get enough to pass Hushman's out of this year, but that is a, a topic of conversation. Just how much longer Boyd is going to be in Cincinnati. I believe his contract runs through the 2023 season. So he's got mm-hmm. a guaranteed two more years here. They're not going to cut him uh, this off season or next off season. They want him here for as long as possible. It's just a matter of if he's going to be here beyond then they'll be like 27, 28, maybe 29 years old entering a third contract. That's a territory that is a little bit questionable when predicting the Bengals, but yeah, it definitely going to enter the top 10 in receiving yards. Uh, he's already seventh in total receptions and he can definitely pass both Isaac Curtis and Chris Collinsworth on, mm-hmm. on that list to enter the top five. That's a pretty decent career for, I believe this is his seventh year in the NFL. So eight years with the Bengals and entering the top 10 and top five and the, like arguably the two most important categories for a receiver. He's been productive basically every year, except maybe one like 2017 when he, when he didn't really play that much. That's yeah. And then of course, also being kind of the uh, number two, number three on the team for a large part of his career. Right. I mean, he was, uh, there was AJ green here, you know, you know, you now got T Higgins and, and Jamar chase now. So um, even, even being down the pecking order, so to speak, he still is a guy that, um, you know, is is very productive, statistically productive. And you can see, as you mentioned, I, I'm just kind of showing off the pro football reference on the Bengals career receiving note. You also see here catch percentage. I mean, Giovanni Bernard's is very high, but he's a running back. Um, I mean, you look at the catch percentages too, 67.7 higher than Hoosh. I mean, they didn't really account for that in the 80s and whatnot, but higher than Pickens, higher than A.J. Green, higher than Chad by a significant amount, um, not only noting his reliability in his hands, but um, you know, also playing into a little bit of him working more of the short and intermediate areas of the field for the most part. Well, he legit just doesn't drop passes. Like right. that, that percentage is by and large because there have been some inaccurate passes that have gone his way, specifically when the last quarterback was here. But I think also that production was very much boosted from the fact that you know when A.J. Green was hurt in like 2019 he was definitely like the number one receiver of of the offense even in 2018 like when aj missed some time i believe like it was when i think boyd was really ascending like that was his first like major year and it's what ultimately got him paid the following offseason so there was there were two seasons where tyler boyd was basically the the number one receiver on this offense and that was not good news for the offense in general because the offense just wasn't very good because you know boyd is a great slot receiver but he's not the receiver to base your whole game plan around, but he just kind of, he was really just fed with a bunch of different targets and he took advantage of it. And he made the most of it. Unfortunately, the offense just wasn't as dynamic as it could have been because there just wasn't enough speed around him. But now we're seeing him where he belongs as that complimentary piece. And he's still been really efficient and productive. Like you said, like there's not a, there's not a catchable ball that comes his way that he doesn't ultimately, you know, fall in. Yep. So those are some of the the kind of, I guess, budding headlines this week. We'll obviously monitor things and just keep the fingers and toes crossed that the health remains intact, that some of these guys keep coming back and that the Bengals 
keep charging forward, but it is looking very, very much ahead than last year, just because of her being healthy and ready to go and no knee brace and the whole deal. So that's all good news there. Uh, we're going to, we're going to transition a little bit because the headlines are a little bit light and even, even if they're a little light, we still had quite a bit to talk about on the Happening Headline Show. So if you haven't yet, go check that out. Not if you're joining us live right now, but if you haven't yet, you got to go check that out. Had a had a good conversation, as I mentioned, with uh, Josh Isles of Houday Houday Nation, the, the great Facebook group and accompanying podcast. So go check all of that out. Um, pretty pretty fun conversation board that they've got going there. Let's move on, John, and talk about the. Bengals season and some of our most favorite games. I don't know if we want to just say, hey, these are my top three or, hey, these are ones that just kind of immediately come to mind. This may seem like an easy thing or an easy answer on its surface. I mean, I saw someone in here earlier. Who was it? Russ. Um, I mean, look at this comment here. And I, I understand that I, I have a tough time thinking of better games than both of the chief games with the fire emoji. Um uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, and then you could talk about, well, the AFC Championship game. Yeah, the Tennessee game. I mean, there's a lot in there. But I've kind of gone back and started watching some of the other games, the the non-playoff games as well. Uh, and there are some gems in there as well, John. And and I, I'm I, there may be one in the regular season that actually might be my favorite game of the year. But if I were to say, John, what are some of the, the top games by the Bengals in their season in 2021 – which ones are you going with and why? Well, for starters, or let's how, start with one. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's go into sending order. Let's go like my three, your three, my two, your two, my one, your one, I guess. So I'll, I'll start with my, my third best game of the 2021 season. I think I have to go with the second Steelers game at home. <laughs> Bengals won 41 to 10. And I think because, I mean, they already beat the Steelers earlier in the season, but that game was a little weirder. Like, they got up kind of early, but then it was pretty ugly for the most part, specifically on the Steelers side of things. The second game was just a complete dismantling of a team that has tortured the Bengals, specifically in that stadium. And they, like, ran up, like, 28-3 to or something like that in the first half. Mike Hilton... Got a pick six against his former team, Trey Hendrickson, with a strip sack. You know, he had Joe Burrow rushing for a touchdown, T. Higgins, Mossing, Pierre, whatever his name was, at cornerback. It was just an onslaught against a team that has, in my lifetime, just completely dominated the Bengals. So I think there was, like, some emotional um, catharsis that was being released with that game, even though it wasn't close and wasn't entertaining for maybe the casual viewer. I, I think there's an emotional impact to that game that puts it in my top three. I I almost went top. That was almost my tops. Uh, I, I I would go maybe my my second favorite. Maybe even I could argue as my first favorite. I, I so that's one I rewatched recently, John. And <laughs> man, I, it wasn't just like you said. It wasn't like a lot. Just the lopsided score on paper. It wasn't just. There was an attitude and an error in that game that. I, I, I just couldn't – I really couldn't believe really what I was watching based on the history that you were t- just talking about between these two franchises and how the Steelers always try to take it to the Bengals. T.J. Watt, absolute non-factor. Remember, that was a big talking point the first game because he wasn't available for that first game, I don't believe. So that was a big talking point by Steelers fans that, oh, T.J. Watt's being back now. Total non-factor. 
And then Mixon running up, I think, but before halftime, having 100 yards on the ground or something. You know, I mean, he was just manhandling them on the ground. And really what it felt like, it just felt like the Bengals outstealered the Steelers, right? I mean, they 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 took they took that game plan in in a lot of ways with the with the running game, Joe Burrow making things happen with his legs and and getting that first touchdown on the ground. There were just play after play and it was it really kind of became um a, a little bit of a pouring <laughs> pouring it on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I there were points at that right before half that, you know, they were marching to, to score again and then burrow through the interception, which then in turn, Ben threw that great pick six to Mike Hilton, which you had to feel great about him uh, for Hilton because, you know, not only was it his first career one, but it also was against his old team. And it just kind of showed, I'd like to think for the next couple of years, but it really just showed at least for last year that there was a big uh, table turning moment between those two teams and and what happened there. So that that's definitely a top one for me. Okay. So I'm going to say number two for me is the first Chiefs game. And I mean, I understand that the other one meant a little bit more because that was the AFC Championship. But there was also, I think, a, a, a theme with this game or at least some type of takeaway. And I always go back to third and 27 with that play call and the execution of it, but just the just the balls, I guess, of Zach Taylor and Burrow kind of going for it in that situation. Like the, the Chiefs like poured it on in the beginning, and it just felt like that's just how this game is gonna go. And that's not what happened. Like the talent and the sheer ability of the Bengals team kind of took over with the home crowd kind of behind them. And they played that game, I think, exactly how a lot of Bengals fans wanted them to, which was just keep up with the Chiefs. Like th- this was, you know, in that first half, they had, we had no idea that the Bengals defense was going to limit Mahomes to zero points in the entire second half. But that's just, you, you don't do that to Patrick Mahomes, regardless of what struggles he was dealing with in the first half of the season. But they were able to do that defensively and also just keep up offensively and, and just score enough to outscore that machine of an offense and hold both Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey to minimal games. I'm glad Kelsey got his touchdown in Cincinnati as a UC fan, but um I'm I guess I'm more glad that he didn't get he, that he didn't get two. And just with how that game ended and the six minute drive to cap it off and, and the fact that like the Bengals like they went for it and it wasn't just playing for the tie. They recognized the the gravity of that situation. That's Patrick Mahomes. You can't give him time with the ball back or else it's gonna happen to what happened with the Bills in the playoffs. And they recognized that and they took advantage of it and they won the division because of it. That, yeah. And there's a lot to like in that one where, you know, I mean, obviously that's one of it's, it's hard. It's really hard to just kind of pick and choose on these, but uh, that is definitely one of, one of the top games for me as well. I mean, it, it showed an arrival. It showed, uh, you know, potentially a foreshadowing of a, a you know, a postseason contest between these two quarterbacks in these two teams maybe in the years ahead you know maybe a little bit of a even though they're not in the same division maybe a little bit of a budding rivalry there because of what transpired in those two games this year so I'm with you on that and it just really um you know that was that was one for me where yeah I mean of course that was a that was a great game Uh, I I look to the week prior though Mm -hmm. um and that one is the the Ravens Bengals 41-21 
And again, it was so satisfying. Now, the, the Bengals have had higher amounts of success traditionally against the Ravens, at least recently, and in the Marvin Lewis era and whatnot, than they have against the Steelers. But uh, this one was just satisfying. You had Burrow going over 500. You had that just, you know, total slap in the face moment at the end where he threw that dime to Mixon who dove and caught this awesome ball to go, get over 500. And, you know, uh, just really, it, you could see how much that the, how much fun the Bengals were having and how much not fun <laughs> the Ravens were having in that, uh, in that one. And again, it just kind of showed it, it teed up that game. You just talked about that chiefs game. It teed that one up to be such a big moment for this team and the, in, in this franchise, but this one just, again, anytime you can do that to your rival. And here's the thing with, with me, John, and I know that injuries pile up as the year goes on, obviously, and rosters can look different at one point in the season, as opposed to another, but I think it's a lot harder, particularly in the AFC North. If you get a win early against a team and you play them at the end of the year, when the Steelers traditionally play their best football, when the Baltimore Ravens traditionally play their best football, and you take it to both of those teams by multiple possessions, that's a statement. And so that one was incredibly satisfying. I know they had, who was it, Josh Johnson, uh, I think, starting in that game. Uh, and yeah. So, I mean, I, I know they were they were decimated as well, but, I mean, Ravens made it a little bit of a game early, but Bengals ran away with it, and they – you know, it was it was just a really, really fun game to watch. It was a real, I mean, it, Burrow had already arrived, but it was a real coming out party for him in that game, just based on the statistics. And so that one right there, I think, was also probably, you could interchange that one or the Steelers game as number two or number three for me. And you can just, you, you can identify, like, the difference in how people view the, the Bengals and the Ravens with that one, because... At that time last year, the Ravens destroyed the Bengals like 38 to 3 at the end of 2020. The Bengals had basically no one healthy for that game. They were playing a complete skeleton crew on defense. I don't think even Bengals fans can tell you that that's starting 11 on defense. I couldn't even tell you that's starting 11, but the Ravens just destroyed them on the ground and no one thought anything of it because the Ravens were a great team, a great franchise with a history of consistent success and the Bengals still had the stigma of being this mediocre joke. The Bengals do the same thing to the Ravens. And if I can do my joke impression, everyone loses their minds. You know, <laughs> It's like the roles were reversed and somehow the narrative changed, but the Bengals didn't get like any sort of like credit or benefit from it. They were just viewed as like, Oh, you just beat up on a, on a bad Ravens team. And the narrative kind of flipped and it didn't maintain the same. So I, I think, the Bengals kind of knew that that's what they had to do to eventually garner the level of respect that the Ravens do. And obviously they, you know, could use a Super Bowl win or two to get on that level. But I think it was the first step in really establishing that sense of respect. So I definitely understand that placement in the top three for me though, the number one game, it wasn't just any playoff game. It was the first playoff win that this franchise had. I was wondering if you're going to go there. Yeah. In 30 years. And I was there to witness it. I was there for both 2005 and 2009. I can't really tell you which one was honestly worse because both were just really ugly. But to be able to be invited by um, a friend that I just met online like six months prior, Ron, Ron Spatola, to be there with him and his friends and 
his significant other to witness it in person. I know that it wasn't the cleanest game. I know that the Bengals probably should have won by a little bit more. There's There was controversy with a, a no call or a phantom whistle with one of the touchdowns, mm-hmm. even though it was a technically clean play. I know there's some things attached to it, but it seemed almost poetic that it wasn't easy, that it had to be a grinder of a game, that it had to come down to the last play, a defensive stand nonetheless at the same yard line where Andy Dalton broke his thumb like seven years prior when we thought that that 2015 team was going to go the distance. I I think it it helps, you know, boost that legacy that the fact that it was such a tough game and a close game and kind of an ugly game in some ways. And the fact that it went all the way to 60 minutes to decide a winner and 65,000 fans in that stadium got to just release every emotion possible in those final 30 seconds when they knew that the Bengals are going to win. I, I think it, it couldn't have honestly been perfect or better than the way that it ended up. I know it wasn't like a game-winning drive by Joe Burrow or anything, but just with the way that it all went down and it came down to the final minute and just remembering, I'll always remember like when the clock hits zero and how hyped everyone was and how just yeah. relieved everyone was when they were exiting the stadium we like we had to wait like 45 minutes to get out of there and i feel like everyone was like no one really cared at the fact that there was like a delay everyone was just enjoying each other's company and just relishing the fact that they saw something that hadn't existed or hadn't happened in over 30 years so there's not a wrong answer uh to this one and there are so many different options that you could choose and that's a really good one the one thing i will say about that game for me as opposed to the other postseason games, that one was probably the most nerve-wracking and/or frustrating at moments. Um, you know, and, and you could talk about, well, they, what are you talking about, Anthony? They lost the Super Bowl, of course. I know they had a chance to win, of course. But as each of those wins piled up through the postseason, you kind of felt like team of destiny. The way they were winning and all these things, you were like getting excited. You, there were times in in the the other two games, the the divisional round against Tennessee, and then of course the championship game against Kansas City, where I almost found myself laughing, like I can't believe what they are doing. I cannot mm-hmm. believe that this is happening to this team that always seems to stumble in big moments and all these things, and they just keep finding ways to do it. And so I almost like was was giggling uh, at moments in, the, in those two games, whereas the Raiders game, I'm like. After all of this, it seems I was getting pretty frustrated because I'm like, it seems like they might let this one actually slip away and this is going to continue to be a thing for them. But like you said, it's just that last moment. And and there is something poetic about it, as you put it, that it wasn't an easy game. It was an arduous game. It was the weather was ugly. Right. I mean, it just was just blah. But it was like, you know what? It got it got the the piano off their back, and they were they were rolling from there. Uh, I, I don't like to go low hanging fruit when I when I do some of these opinion things or give my opinion, but it's hard to go against either the division game or the championship game for me. I guess I'll settle on the championship game because of it being a rematch, because of it being in Patrick Mahomes' backyard, because of the weather and the atmosphere in Arrowhead Stadium. It was unreal that the Bengals were able to pull that one out. And it was also unreal, John, that it was a very similar situation in terms of the deficit 
in terms of a tale of two halves and in terms of what, uh, what, what that game ended up being. And so when they went into halftime shortly after that fourth, fourth and goal stand, the score didn't still look, what was it? 21, 10, I think at that point, or uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was pretty ugly at that point, even so, and even being in Kansas city and all of that, you started to kind of believe at that point that they're going to make this a game at a bare minimum. They're going to make it a game. They're going to come out at halftime and they're going to do something different. They're going to look different. And at that moment, that fourth down stand was, you know, something that, that they were going to use as a catalyst there. So I, I don't like to use the low hanging fruit, but, and there's a lot of, I mean, you could, hell, you could even talk about the Jaguars win and say that was a, that was a fun game. I think, you know, a ton of Bengals fans that, that, you know, and content creators and whatnot were all in the, in the crowd. And it was a really cool atmosphere there, but I mean, there's not really a wrong answer, but I, I, I am hard pressed to not, I'm hard pressed to go against arguably the biggest uh, uh, top three win in franchise history. Really. I mean, if you look at um, you look at that game, you look at the freezer bowl, you look at a couple of others. I mean, there's, there's few that would beat that in terms of importance. Well, I mean, from my perspective, like I I wouldn't hit you with the low hanging fruit there because objectively of all the, the 13 wins that this team had, like that was definitely of the, the highest quality of like, watchability like I, th- I feel like if you were to pull just a random fan like what was like the best game that the Bengals won it was definitely that one just because of everything that happened and the stakes that were involved with it the fact that it went to overtime they lost the coin toss mm-hmm. and they still won a week after the Chiefs were in that situation and they won in that, in that exact same scenario and the fact that the scenario was almost congruent with what happened four weeks earlier. So a hundred percent, like I, I think that's probably like the objective answer to like, what was the best game? I, I look at like the Raiders one, and this is what I forgot to mention. The fact that it was a close game, the fact that it wasn't perfect. I know they ended up scoring 26, but they could have scored more. They could, they left points on the board. They did. I think the fact that they were able to grind that out and the fact that it was their first playoff game, it validated a lot of things that they had done in the season, but it also, I think gave them the confidence to say that if we need to grind these wins out in the playoffs, because it's, it is different between the regular season and the playoffs, if we can do this in this scenario when things don't go right, I think that 100% helped them in Tennessee and then in Kansas City. And maybe if they had blown out the Raiders, maybe they wouldn't wouldn't have learned that lesson like that. And maybe some things would have been tougher. Maybe they wouldn't have gotten as far as they did. I don't know. It's a weird argument. It's a lot of intangibles, things that we can't really measure, but that's just kind of where my mind is from that first playoff win. And I think it definitely helped them actually achieve the, the two wins that followed that. So I wanted to just quickly, before we move on and talk about some behind the scenes bangles that we want to get to this, this week, um, Russ kind of uh, brought it up a little bit in the, in the YouTube chat, but this is kind of a little bit of where I wanted to go with this to put a, put a cap on it. Uh, either an honorable mention or maybe a Bengals loss where you were like, Damn, that was a fun, fun game, even though they, they they lost and losses aren't fun and they're not fun to cover. And I know they're not fun for the players or the coaches or anything, but a, either a loss or just another game under the radar where you go, man, that was that was a fun one. Well, I'm going to get crap for this, but the Super Bowl was legitimately fun. Like that was a classic game that had a lot of backs and forths and a lot of memorable moments. 
I'm not going to pick it. I'm just going to say that I'm on the side that like that was like a fun game, and I will. It was fun. I, I I won't just think of it as a Bengals loss. I will think of it as a memorable Super Bowl. When some of the Super Bowls, at least in recent memory, have been very ugly or non memorable, the loss that I'm going to go with, I think it's easy. I think it's the Packers. Just the mayhem <laughs> that ended yeah. that game with so many miss. I was I was at my desk like trying to write write this recap or whatever oh that God. I was doing. Oh my and God. it's just like I had to change the title like three times. <laughs> yeah, like so many drafts <laughs> I had to delete. And I was just I was legitimately it was like I'm becoming the Joker. Like this is way too many missed field goals that happened to both of these kickers who are very accurate. Like I had no idea how that was going to end. I thought that the Bengals were going to lose immediately when Joe Burrow threw the worst interception of his, I think, of his life. When it was just like five yards in front of him, he threw it right at whatever the linebacker was. And the fact that they didn't lose right after that, it was just mind-bendingly crazy. Definitely the best yeah. loss. Yeah, I would, I would go with that one as well. Um, in in terms of a loss, just because it was crazy. And and the other thing with it, I mean it. Honestly, that was another game where I was almost just like laughing because it was like, this is utterly ridiculous what is happening to these <laughs> field goal kickers and, and all kinds of stuff. And I actually talked to a Packers fan recently and we were talking about that game and they're like, ah, I just didn't understand those two kickers, what happened to them that day because they just couldn't they couldn't figure it out. Um, but the, the takeaway with it too, aside from it being like a highly entertaining game, a lot of points, went down to the wire, all kinds of stuff. That was also kind of an arrival moment for me with this team last uh, this last season because I'm like, you know, they could do that and go all the way to the wire to, with Aaron Rodgers, and it was f- kind of a fluky, weird game. And really, whoever won that game, you would have been like, okay. But, I mean, because there was right. so much stuff. But it, it to me, it was like, you know, this young team – there were some questions after the Bears loss and all kinds of different things. So yeah, that was a that was a game for me that I felt that uh, was, was a big moment for him. And then the first Raiders game too, um, coming out of that bye, it was ugly for a little while. Then they really pulled away, and that was a game they really had to have, John, if they were going to be taken serious, if they were going to be a team that uh, was was going to make the postseason and do some things. And so um, you know what that wasn't pretty, but they got it done. And they weren't playing great football to that point. I think there were a couple of games going into that bye. I think the Jets game was was right around there, and other things where you're going, oh, who is this team? And so they came out, and it was a, it was a tight game there. And then, I mean, the Raiders were a good team. They made the postseason. So uh, you know, to to have to go into Las Vegas and play that way out of a bye and end up pulling pulling away like that at the end, I thought that was impressive as well. But those are some of our favorite games. Again, there are so many that we could talk about. It was a really, really fun and special season. We're probably long overdue on talking about these games a little bit more in depth uh, throughout the whole schedule. We obviously went in depth on them game by game as they happen, but uh, not so much looking in the rearview mirror. But, you know, I've been finding myself look going, uh, you know, on the uh, the game pass and whatnot and kind of ca- catching parts of games here and there before bed or something like that, watching a little bit of that. So came to mind as, as something to talk about. We're going to roll on here. We're going to get to a uh, a couple of players of behind-the-scenes Bengals. And if you are new here, we used to do kind of either player profiles or potential breakout players or whatever as training camp nears. We kind of did a little bit of a different spin on it. It's not so much, you know, this person's going to break out and do, do a big thing for the Bengals. That's kind of part of it. But it's also maybe someone that we're just not really readily thinking about. And they will play a more prominent role maybe than we think, or maybe they'll uh, step up and be a higher role player than, you know, instead of a fringe roster guy or what have you. So 
Who do you have as a behind-the-scenes Bengals player this week, John? Yeah, I think this is weird because what happened in the offseason around this guy, it might very well impact how much he actually sees the field. But I think his path to Cincinnati and his immediate impact that he provided um, their defense, I think it it makes a good statement of what his value is. And the fact that they retained him in the offseason indicates that like he found a home here and they want to continue utilizing him. And that's Trey Flowers. And it, immediately, I, I think about the way that we're talking about this defense and how you have 11 guys on the field and really like seven of them can play multiple positions and it's always adaptable to whatever the, the defense is doing. The ability to wear multiple hats, play multiple roles and kind of be a positionless asset. I think Flowers is one of the first guys on this defense to really embrace that and to really be an asset with his versatility and not just have versatility on his resume as like a buzzword. There's legitimate versi- positional versatility with Trey Flowers. And that's something that Seattle couldn't really get out of him. He was just this boundary cornerback because he was like 6'3", 215, 220, and he couldn't really stay on the field. There wasn't a lot of consistency with this technique. So the, the Seahawks waved him in the middle of the 2021 season. Lou Anarumo sees this behemoth of a defensive back he has a defense that still has some issues matching up one-on-one with tight ends. Why not bring him in, see if he can use his physicality to limit some of these guys? And it wasn't always pretty, but he definitely got the job done better than, I don't know, anyone on this Bengals defense in the <laughs> last 15 years. And right. it really was like, I, I just think about so much discourse involving the Bengals finding a guy to handle this role And there was talks about just draft these linebackers or these safeties in the first round primarily to do this one thing. And then the answer ended up being a former like fifth round pick claimed on waivers in the middle of October, who is now making about one and a half million dollars per year. The how he ended up in this position, it's just the life of the NFL, I guess. But you're now talking about a guy who is definitely going to make the team. I think he's like cornerback four or five now, if that's the position that we want to label him as. But he's basically a strong safety linebacker, overhang defender, whatever you want to say. He's just he's just out there in space. He can follow tight ends like Darren Waller and Travis Kelsey. He can do a bunch of different things in zone. I think you can trust him in, in space in that regard. And again, like you can't really label him anywhere on the depth chart. It's just basically, hey, here's a here's a man to guard over the middle of the field. Here's a zone to, you know, kind of cover in the short areas of the field. Go do that. And the fact that they brought him back, it took a while, I think, to happen. I think it didn't happen until like the beginning or middle of April, but it wasn't just like a nothing contract. It was definitely more than just the minimum deal that they could have made. And I think they were trying to figure out a price for him because there is value here. And there is, it's not just bringing him back on a one-year deal and and see what he does in camp. No, I, I think it's, there is a plan to involve him just as much as they did towards the end of last season. And Anthony, I think the only thing in my mind now is like the addition of Dax Hill, assuming that, you know, Bates is back and he's playing a full you know slate of snaps. How do they implement Dax Hill in this defense along with maintaining Trey Flowers snaps with the role that they want to have for him? I think it's definitely not an issue to have things be kind of crowded in the backfield. You definitely want as many guys as possible to fill out these roles. I just think that 
I don't know. Like maybe we see more Trey Flowers in the beginning of the season, and we see Dax Hill implemented maybe more often as the as the year goes on. Maybe you can have them both on the field or both in a rotation doing similar things. I just think with, with this year with Trey Flowers, I think this is the defense for him. And obviously injuries can impact this and maybe he'll get more of a role or maybe, you know, he'll get injured. We won't have to worry about this rotation or, or whatnot from that perspective. But I'm just really interested to see how his role evolves or if it stays the same now with this defensive backfield really stacked. It's a very good selection here and one that makes a lot of sense in terms of a guy, you know, we're taught, we talk Eli Apple, we talk, you know, Jadobi Wujie, we talk Jesse Bates and all these players. And this is a guy who quietly just did a lot of things that were pretty damn effective for this team down the stretch. And you mentioned a couple of names, Travis Kelsey, Darren Waller, the Bengals played those two tight ends, two of the best ones in the league twice towards in the back end of the season, a piece. So, and and when you look at really the impact, you talk about Kelsey having the touchdown in that first game, the impacts of those guys were not as high as they have, as we've seen them be not only against the Bengals, but against other teams. I mean, those are outstanding players. And I think in large part, Trey Flowers was, was a guy to help with that. And then when you look at the Bengals schedule again this year, John, you know, you look at the tight ends and he, he kind of plays some slot work and all that kind of stuff. The Steelers, they always work in tight ends. You've got uh, the Jets who loaded up with like 28 tight ends this offseason. You've got the Dolphins with, with Gasecki there, right? You've got the Ravens who also have another 28 tight ends that they've loaded up with, right? I mean, you look at this is a, a schedule that's going to be – you've got the Browns who just uh, re-signed their, their tight end there and Joku to a big deal. So he's going to be part of their offense, uh, a big part of their offense going forward. I mean – Austin Hooper now signs with the Titans uh, you've got. Uh, and then of course you got Kelsey again. So my, my point is, is this is going to be a guy, even though he's not going to be the boundary guy, Pete Carroll loved those big long corners to play on the outside. That's who Richard Sherman was. He loved those types of players. It just didn't work with him in Seattle in that prominent of a role, but he has found a home here He's been, I guess, a little bit of a rental player based on being picked up on waivers last year and then a short-term agreement this year. But a guy, I think, that just is going to provide a lot of value, especially with how the schedule sets up. Yeah, and Robert Obrick with a great question. Could you see him being used almost like a linebacker in spread packages? I mean, that's more or less what he was. Like, you mm-hmm. have to think back to, like, that first Chiefs game, I think, is when we really saw in, the, in that second half, like, the Bengals defense kind of going against the grain of how to the to defend the chiefs and they had basically more or less like seven defensive backs on the field if you want to include flowers as one and he was over the middle of the field you know following travis kelsey wherever he went sticking with him in man coverage and i think he was only beat like one time and that was unfortunately for a touchdown but he held kelsey to like 35 30 yards total that's more or less what it is like if you're in a situation where it's best to drop back as many guys in coverage as possible maybe mahomes is like the exception to that rule but I think more and more defenses will try to adapt to that strategy because of how effective it ended up being for, for two separate second halves. And I think a, a chess piece like Flowers where you kind of put him in the middle between some athletes on the boundary and make sure you have you know safety help over the top. You have those over-the-middle defenders who can drop back, utilize their length to get into passing lanes, but also that length helps them you know stay with their guys in coverage 
you know, be be really handsy, right? He's not the most athletic guy for his size necessarily. He he may not be able to keep up with some of the more shifty slot receivers, but his physicality and size make him a great matchup for those either big slots or tight ends and over the middle is exactly where you want him to be. Yeah. And you know, the Bengals for all of the criticism that they've received as a team and as a franchise lack of success over the years, their ability to take some of these players, whether it's with the Marvin Lewis staff, this current staff staffs prior, I, I hate to say, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. I don't like to use that saying when you're talking about players, but um, the Bengals have kind of embraced that a little bit to some extent where the players are discarded or not valued in other places and they find a new role, a new situation for them and they make it work. And kudos to the Bengals, kudos to Lou Anarumo and kudos to Trey Flowers, who really took a much different role, a less prominent role than he had in Seattle. And I remember when the Bengals picked him up last year off waivers, there, were a, there was a contingent of Seahawks fans saying, good luck with that. We ended up being a really solid piece and a solid player, and and Anarumo had a plan for him, and it worked well. Um, I'm going to transition and just we can keep this one kind of quick, so we can uh, keep keep the show time wise manageable. The the one I want to talk about a little bit is is Josh Tupo, and I, I put I put some names down on on these sheets, and for some reason I never end up using these names. I, I like transition off of someone else in our pre pre show notes. So Tupo was a guy as we kind of were talking. And as we're talking about this segment is just a guy that I kind of feel like what's going to what's in store for him this year, because now you don't have Ogan Joby and who knows if he's going to be part of the plan coming back there. You got Zachary Carter back in the mix. Shelvin is there, but Shelvin is a guy that's been, you know, all, you know, kind of. He did not get a lot of snaps last year and he's kind of the big, big boy mold like Tupo. And then when you look at again, especially with what the Ravens have tried to do and remold their offense into a little bit more. I don't know if you want to call it ground and pound, but definitely more controlled passing to the tight ends, utilize the run game. There are now rumors about Najee Harris being up in weight a little bit, I guess in good weight, put on a little, little pounds of whatever you want to call it there. Uh, We know that the AFC North is tough, physical, and you need to have big bodies Tupo was a guy I think he had, if you look at his stats last year, 12 total tackles, 13 total tackles, but he still is a valuable guy on that defensive line. And when the Bengals are going to need to utilize rotations, they're going to need to keep guys fresh. DJ Reader got a ton of snaps as the year wore on. You know, the edge players got a lot of snaps as the year wore on because there just wasn't the depth. I think a guy like Tupo is is going to be a guy that we need to start thinking about and and Really, I, I think he's going to deserve some some praise as the year goes on for the work he does here. And he just keeps, um, you know, coming back on these short term deals and, uh, you know, plays well when called upon for the most part. Yeah, I, th- I think I would look to his contract again. And I, I think the fact that they brought him back on a, a two year deal, I think that says a lot about what they think about him and maybe what they also think about Tyler Shelvin. I think there's a there's an expectation that Shelvin plays more and he kind of steps up to the role when called upon. But I think to me that signifies that they just don't trust Shelvin yet. Whereas Tupo for the last, how many years, you know, he's slowly kind of grown into the role that he has and he's continued to just be a solid player with the snaps that he's given and a two year commitment to him. I mean, they don't have a ton of bodies, at defensive tackle. So it's like, 
he's basically that third guy right now, like behind BJ Hill and uh, DJ Reader. And Tupo, for being as like big as he is, like I think he came into the NFL like 350. He might not be as at that weight now, but he's played practically every he's a big dude. He's, he's a big dude. Practically every interior spot from like from heads up on the nose to even five technique. Like when they were starting to roll out some of those odd fronts with Lou and Arumo, like he was that first option over the tackle and he managed to be a solid run defender there. But I think they want him, you know, obviously closer to the center to utilize that size. But I think there's just a lot of trust with him. And until Shelvin shows that he's ready for more snaps, they have this guy under contract for two years. They need the depth of defensive tackle. He played multiple positions pretty well. And yeah, he's here to stay. Yeah, 345 is what the Bengals web official website notes him as. So uh, big guy and, you know, not the same player or whatnot and maybe not as productive at times, but reminds me a little bit in terms of what he does when he's on the field and with the snaps he's given a little bit of a Pat Sims-esque yeah. type, type of guy. Just, you know, he seems to just make plays and, and does what they ask him to do well. There are limitations there, but um, there's a lot of size and there's a lot of usefulness for a player like that, especially in the division where in the Bengals play. So that's a guy I'm really interested to watch throughout tra- training camp and whatnot, especially as the Bengals kind of sort through the myriad of defensive line players all across the line that they've that they've amassed over the past couple of drafts and hurt players coming back and all that kind of stuff. They've got a lot of lot to figure out. So at any rate, those are a couple of behind the scenes bangles that we have noted. And again, we're we're interested to see how things play out with them. We're gonna get out of here. Before we drop the mic, I've got a couple of minutes on a remember when, John, and I've got a video queued up for this. The, the, I'll 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 tee up the video by saying this back in 2003 Marvin Lewis inherited a team that was largely a mess. However, there were a lot of players on that team, some very, very good and star players who had either made pro bowls should have made pro bowls and didn't. Um, And he was trying to not only corral those players into believing the direction that he was taking this team and, or, um, you know, just kind of adding to those star players and really trying to build something special. He did for the most part. I mean, obviously there's a, a series of disappointments, but got the Bengals where they had not been for a very long time. Credit to him, credit to a lot of players on the roster. One person he could not get to buy in though, John Sheeran. One person was Takeo Spikes. And Takeo Spikes was not having another coach. He was not sticking around for the Bengals after his rookie contract was done. He was going to go to free agency and go from there. What I've got is a video. John and I spoke to Takeo Spikes almost two years ago to the day here. Um, I think it was at the end of July. So not to the day, but close to two years ago at the time. Uh, He was talking about a new podcast he was on with the Believe Network and everything. So this is a short excerpt. John and I asked him about a lot of different things. And he, John and I asked him about how this situation played out in Cincinnati because Marvin Lewis wanted him here. There's just some real gems in this, in this here. It's going to be about three or four minutes, I believe. So I'm going to share this video with you all here and you can check out exactly what, what uh, I'm talking about. But uh, this was uh, going back and listening to this interview was definitely something that I found to be, I don't know, just eye-opening in a lot of different ways. So I'm going to share that with you now. Your contract was up with the Bengals. 
you had an opportunity to stay with them. They were in a state of transition. They brought in Marvin Lewis, a guy, a defensive minded coach, a guy who won a Super Bowl. And it was a big decision for you to make in terms of you being an impending free agent. Do you stay in Cincinnati and try and be a part of what Marvin Lewis was trying to build? Or do you, do you say, no, thanks. I'm going to go to, uh, you know, greener grass, I guess. And you, you chose the latter. I'm kind of curious how that process went for you and what the sales pitch was for you by the Bengals, by the coaching staff to have you try and stay at that point in time. Because after you left, Marvin tried to replace you with a number of different guys and really didn't succeed in doing so. Well, the process was, I was frustrated. And if you look at, and I know this probably be some of the same sentiments that a lot of guys who were drafted by the Bengals, but I was frustrated because high school playing for championships, college playing for championships. And then when you get to the Bengals, it's like, all right, okay, all right, one year, okay, it may take one or two years to get this thing rolling. But when you see the leadership is really not in place, or if you see the leadership is in place, but you can tell certain coaches' hands are tied, hmm. it's like, what are we doing? You know, what are we here for? And I think the biggest thing I knew at a young age was that as professional athletes, you have a shelf life. You have an expiration date. The sad part about it is you don't know when it's going to be. Could be due to injury. Could just be due to the lack of love of the game. And I just knew I got tired of getting my damn head beat in every week. And and I'm going out there giving everything I possibly could give. I was frustrated when Marvin came in. He wanted me to stay. I told him I wasn't staying. He told me I was staying. <laughs> they They put the tag on me. And I remember looking at every strategic way of trying to get out. I remember taking a visit to Buffalo. They transition, transition tagged me. And when they did that, I remember going to Buffalo. And I knew whoever was going to make an offer on me, if that offer wasn't lucrative enough, then Cincinnati had the rights to match that deal. And I would be forced to stay there. And, you know, so I just remember just telling him, like, oh, I don't want to be here. And I think the biggest thing that I remember from Marvin was he looked at me and said, hey, you know, in every situation, there's solutions to every problem. You know, you got problems, you have solutions. And he was like, as much as you say this was the problem here in the past, you were a part of it. So now you have an opportunity to change that, be, to change the narrative. I say, I understand that, and you are right. Team is team. I'll take that. But I said, just as you stated that there are problems, I understand there are solutions. So I'm going to take my solutions and be a solution to somebody else. And I remember calling Marvin when we signed that tender deal with, when we signed the deal with Buffalo. And I was like, I would appreciate it if you don't uh, match it, because if you do, you have goals and uh, goals and expectations as far as what you want to do. And I know the influence I have in that locker room. And I made it clear I didn't want to be there. So I know I carry a lot of influence in the locker room. So I just think it would be counterproductive 
for both of us to be in that same situation after I'm telling you that I don't want to be there. So I remember 30 minutes passed by. Well, he got off the phone by saying, it's not your decision. I'm like, all right, well, I just let you know what I, I, I'm telling you what I'm going to do. So 30 minutes after that, I remember they decided not to match the deal. And then that's how I became a Buffalo Bill. So some interesting insight there. And I know it's a little lengthy, but that was one of the, I mean, that's it. Go, go check out that interview, by the way, if you can, if you want to go back in the audio archives or YouTube channel, you can go to the playlist there about interviews with, with Bengal players and whatnot. But the thing I found interesting was basically he almost kind of said, I was, he kind of gave a little threat, John, about like, Hey, I've got a lot of pull in the locker room as it is right now. So this is not going to go well because everybody knows that I don't want to be here. I've made it clear and I will probably let some other people in that locker room know about that. So I found that to be pretty interesting, but remember when Takeo spikes, they tried to hang on. They only gave him the tra- transition tag. They didn't get to do the franchise tag. Uh, but remember when they, they tried to talk him into staying in the Marvin Lewis rebuild, he didn't Marvin Lewis couldn't find that next Ray Lewis for a long time, really until Vontez perfect showed up. Ray Maluga to a lesser extent and, you know, uh, and spikes made a couple pro bowls with the bills, but you know, didn't, didn't have the, the huge modicum of, of postseason success that I think he was also seeking after leaving the Bengals. Yeah. You can't force someone to be someplace that they don't want to be. And that's ultimately what it is. Like, I feel like <laughs> it kind of reminded me of, um, like someone like an employee putting in like, um, like a PTO for like request, like, hey, I'm not going to be here. And the boss is like, eh, we kind of need you here. Like, no, this is not a request. I'm telling you, I'm not going to be here. That's not <laughs> plans. <laughs> Unfortunately, I feel like for most employees, they don't get like, well, oh, you know, like in the office, like I got a lot of pool around there. I, you don't want me right. just telling that. Right. Like, these, right. These guys have power. These guys have leverage. And I think for Marvin, it, it was probably tough because he was the brand new head coach. And there was an obvious stigma with the Bengals. And you know, Spikes literally lived through it. He was a living testament of what it did to some of those players and what the perception was. And there's just no point in keeping him around if he didn't want to be here. And that's then they ultimately made the right decision. It's why the franchise tag really does suck. I think people are going to maybe equate this to what Jesse Bates is going through, but I don't think it's necessarily the same situation. That just seemed like Tequila Spikes himself personally just didn't want to be in Cincinnati, regardless of, of the financials. And sometimes that just happens. The partnership ends and like the two sides just have to move on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as much as he got, uh, he actually you saw the little clip at the end there. He had some good plays against the Bengals and whatnot. And, and he kind of took it back to them, so to speak. And he got the Pro Bowls with the Bills. And then he ended up being on some successful teams at the 49ers towards the end of his career. Had a very long career beyond the Bengals. I think he played another 10 years or so beyond the Bengals. Um, you know, still never got a got a Lombardi or, you know, was with teams that had a huge amount of success. And and it, it I think also for the Bengals, while they really wanted him here, I think Marvin Lewis also said this could be by keeping him. This could also almost be worse than losing him uh, in terms mm-hmm. of having that Paul hang over the locker room and all kinds of things. So that was that. I just was thinking about that. Go check out that interview we had with with Takeo Spikes a couple of years ago. It was a lot of fun talking with him. Fun chat. Can't believe it's been almost two years. But uh, remember when Takeo Spikes, the Bengals tried to get him to stay, and he wouldn't stay for the Marvin Lewis rebuild. And that's also my mic drop as well. <laughs> well, for my mic drop, 
I know this is the Bengals show, and I don't mean to get like too off topic, but I feel like this is an issue that I think a lot of people care about, and I just wanted to address it. The taunting rule, the taunting penalties. It's gotten way, way out of control. Like these refs and the their ways of just releasing these flags onto players and these players getting unfairly penalized. It's just happening way too much. We saw it all last season. It mm-hmm. shouldn't be happening this much. And I know there's a lot of people that are going around with solutions and they're trying to make it like maybe it's a league office issue. Like maybe, you know, if we just put in the right people into the league office, maybe we can you know, kind of diminish or, you know, minimize some of these taunting flags and the frequency of which the flags are thrown at these players. Right. Maybe it's something to do with that. But honestly, the more I think about it, what if we just give the players flags to throw back at the refs? Now, I know that the, the players, you know, they signed up to play the game of football. Like, their their job is not to defend themselves with other flags and to throw the flags back at the refs. But maybe if we give the players flags and that now the refs know that the players are armed with penalty flags, maybe that would, I don't know, I, I guess... I don't know. Like, do, do, does that make sense to anyone else? Like, if we arm the players with flags, maybe the refs won't throw the flags to the players for for things that they shouldn't be penalized, right? Like, these players don't deserve to be penalized. Like, they're, they're the free reign of which these refs can get these flags and throw these flags for these penalties. It's just, it's insane. It's like this doesn't happen with any other sport in the world, but it's happening to this sport that we all know and love. And it's just... You know, it, it really just does keep me up at night at how often these players are flagged for things that are just completely unnecessary. I don't know, man. Maybe maybe, maybe arming the players with flags is the right decision. It just keep, it keeps me up at night. <laughs> I'm I'm wondering if there's a parallel to another topic of what you, what you're talking about. I know the taunting rule was in its because getting rid of the flags, of course not. Like we like the refs have a right to these flags. They're as part of the game. It's been always been part of the game, right? We can't can't get rid of these rid of these flags. Of course not. So maybe more flags is the answer. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I I'm feeling you. I'm feeling you on on what you're what you're dropping on the mic drop there, John. And I know people can read between the lines, or hopefully they will read between the lines of what you are dropping there. And uh, that's it's well said. Not penalty well suck, said. man. That's that's all I meant to say. Yeah, that is that is true. That is very true. As we said at the top of the show, hopefully you have subscribed to it whether it's on the YouTube channel, whether it's giving a thumbs up to the Cincy Jungle Facebook page or through one of the audio channels, the Cincy Jungle uh, podcast channel through one of your audio platforms there. So hopefully you give us a subscribe and leave us a review. We appreciate all the support and everything. And we're going to continue to bring you all kinds of stuff throughout the offseason. What we're going to be queuing up is uh, some AFC North previews, outlooks, all that kind of stuff with some guest contributors so that'll be coming down the pike we've got more stuff coming too so keep it to our show keep it to the cincy jungle podcast channel and keep it to of course cincyjungle.com where people like my guy john sheeran do great work covering the team bringing you news bringing you opinions all kinds of different stuff thanks everybody have a great week we'll be back with more for you on the show john have a have a good rest of your week my man you as well man all right take care
more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.